This is the word of the Lord. I think every single one of us is trying to make sense of our life in light of death. Every single one of us is trying to make sense of life, trying to wrap our minds and our hearts and our, and our whole life around the fact that even though we are alive, we know that we face, we face death. In the Bill Murray film in 1991, there's this incredibly deep and profound movie called What About Bob? <laughs> and there's a scene in which a 12-year-old boy named Siggy, short for Sigmund Freud, is talking to the 40-year-old something uh, neurotic named Bob, who's the heart of the film. And throughout the movie, Siggy, who again is named after Freud, is fixated on death. And what else would a kid who's named after Freud fixate on? And he's having a conversation with Bob about life and death. And I want to just show you a brief clip for just a second. All of us are trying to make sense of life in light of that, the fact that we are all going to die. I don't have a lot of memories from childhood, but I have one uh, very clear memory of when I was a young child, and I remember my mom explaining me this process of death. I remember where I was. I remember, you know, kind of standing there and listening, and I can remember thinking, and I'm trying to understand what she's saying, but I can't really understand it. It's not computing. It's not supposed to compute, I don't think. Kids have such a hard time dealing with it. We have such a hard time dealing with it. And I think most of us spend most of our waking hours doing everything we can to avoid this subject. This past week, I watched a video of David Cameron. He's the prime minister of the UK. Maybe you saw it. It was all over social media. And he was talking about the importance of the Christian faith in Easter and actually talking about how the, the United Kingdom is a Christian nation. He said this boldly, actually. And he said this. He said, Easter is a time for Christians to celebrate the ultimate triumph of life over death and the resurrection of Jesus. The prime minister of the United Kingdom said this this last week. That Easter is a time for Christians to celebrate the ultimate triumph of life over death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here this morning. That perfectly sums it up. And from 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to talk about three things this morning. First of all is this. The resurrection is gospel. It's good news. Next, the resurrection is necessary. It's absolutely essential. And finally, the resurrection is victory. It's gospel. It's necessary. And it is our victory. First, the resurrection is gospel. In the beginning of chapter 15, Paul says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, the gospel. Uh, we hear the word gospel. If you come here a lot, you hear that word all the time. You hear of gospel music. It's, it's one of those religious terms. Well, what does it mean? It means literally good news in English. It's good news. 
But that word was used in context in Paul's day quite a bit. It was the word evangelion, which meant gospel or good news. But it was used in, in the context of a king having victory over his enemies. And an evangelist would be sent by the king to proclaim good news to cities. And he would ride into a town on a horse or, you know, whatever that means, chariot, and come into the town and say, good news, the king has great victory over our enemies. And of course, the town or city would celebrate in this declaration of good news. And so these early Christians believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the ultimate gospel or ultimate good news, of course, because it was the ultimate announcement of victory over the ultimate enemy of humanity, which is what? Death. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He says this, that Christ died in our sins, according to the scripture. He, he died for our sins. He died an atoning death. He, on the cross, he, he wasn't just murdered. He was laying down his life for the sins of us. He was buried. Then he raised on the third day, Paul says. Then, he says, he appeared to Cephas, who's a, that's a nickname for Peter. Then he appeared to over 500 people at one time. Then he appeared, the last of all, to me. And Paul, though, is wanting to establish that this appearance of Jesus Christ from the dead, first to Peter, then to the other apostles, then to 500 people, then to James, and then last of all to him, was rooting this reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in an historical event. Ever since that moment, people have been trying to dissuade people from believing it and saying, clearly, this didn't actually happen. This was a myth. This was a lie. This is a group of disciples trying to figure out what to do after their leader had died. But if you know the story, what Paul is saying is this is rooted in reality. This is rooted in history. There were 500 people that saw this. These 12 apostles saw it. Go speak to them. They're still alive. You can find them yourself and speak to them. Paul is not just saying, this is a good idea that we all ought to believe in. And, you know, it feels good to believe in something bigger than yourself. And, you know, it's good to, like, maybe Jesus rises in our hearts, but did he really rise from the dead? Paul says he really actually rose from the dead. His body was raised. Unbelievably powerful. And he's saying this is the good news. How did Paul come to believe this, because before Paul was the Apostle Paul, Saint Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious zealot. He was a leader of the Jews who was so committed against Christianity that he actually was responsible for the death of several Christians. He had them persecuted unto death. That's what he says. He is the least among all the apostles because he persecuted the church. How does someone so zealous against the resurrection become one who now is literally laying down his life and ultimately did die for his faith? It was because Jesus Christ appeared to him that Saul of Tarsus had an experience where he saw the risen Christ and this man's life was changed in an instant. He then went on to write one-third of the New Testament and to literally lay down his life for the faith. The resurrection is gospel. It's good news. It is victory over our ultimate enemy, which is death itself. The next thing I want us to see from this passage is this. It's necessary. It's essential. When I was a first-year student in seminary, I've told this story before, but when I was a first-year student, all the first years took 
the same kind of classwork, and one of the classes we were in was uh, the study of the philosophy of religion. And our professor was Jerry Walls, and uh, he's an author, he's written a lot of books, and he's a great lecturer, and he had, you know, many, many lectures and so forth, but a few stood out from the rest, and one of them was on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he would begin the lecture by asking this, how many of you would still believe in the deity of Jesus Christ if today they could prove that they found the bones of Jesus in Jerusalem? And with great energy and pathos and zeal, he was asking this question and just pushing us rhetorically. How many of you would still believe that Jesus is God, that he's deity, that you should worship him, that you should give your life to him, even if they could prove that they had the bones of Jesus? And I know that that would be impossible, but let's just say they could prove it. How many of you would still believe? And in this rhetoric and sort of riling us up, most of us would raise our hands. I did not. But most of us raised our hands and said, yes, we would still believe. And he looked at all those who raised him and said, you fools. You would be an idiot to still believe that Jesus Christ is God if they found his bones in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Paul says in this passage. Paul says, the resurrection is not just one thing to believe among many. It's the thing. It's the thing that establishes everything. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says, Christianity is useless and that we should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. He literally said that. It's necessary. It's essential. It validates everything else. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14. Through 19. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. This is a really miserable church. <laughs> they believe wrong things. Uh, they're behaving really poorly. Um, they're, they're treating the poor badly. They're fighting during the Lord's Supper. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, this is a really, really bad church, and it gets worse from there. But one of the things that they were believing that wasn't true was that Jesus was raised, but that we have no hope in that resurrection that there's no general resurrection, us, that Jesus was raised, and that's a good thing, but, but there's no resurrection of the dead for us. So he says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and we are found to be misinterpreting God. For if the dead are not right raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, he says it again, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins because his death meant nothing. If he died on the cross between two thieves, innocent, he's just another innocent person like many that have died by the hands of a government. Your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're dead but with no hope of life. And then he says this finally, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only. Do you hear him? If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be what? Pitied. We're fools. In another place, he says, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. None of this matters. If Christ was not raised, and then we in tune will also not be raised, that we have no hope. But this is the thing. This is, this is his rhetoric. He's saying, but of course Christ has been raised. And of course, because of that, you too will be raised. It's absolutely essential for the Apostle Paul to believe. 
and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It establishes or unestablishes the Christian faith. Now, if you're a skeptic or a believer, I understand how difficult this is to believe. We are separated by over 2,000 years now of time between when a, a poor Jewish carpenter died and then according to the Christian faith, rose again from the dead. He wrote no books. Uh, he was a simple man from a simple family. He, he literally kind of was in anonymity and hiding for over 30 years. And then he steps forward onto the stage of human history and he says, I am God. I am fully man, I am fully God, you're to worship me as God. And then not only that, he backed it up with his life and what he did. He kept preaching things like this, that the kingdom of God is present because I'm here. He, he would read from Isaiah and, and preach good news to the poor and say, this has been fulfilled because I'm here reading this right now. I am literally ushering in the kingdom of God. Why? Because I am the king. But then he died. His disciples had no preconceived notion that that would happen as Jews. The Messiah was not supposed to lay down his life like this in their mind. He was to be a conquering warrior and a conquering victor in a military sense. But he dies. But then you know the story. He, he rises from the dead. And Paul says that's absolutely essential. And of course you have doubts. Even if, even if you're the strongest Christian here this morning, you have doubts about this. But work them out. Doubt your doubts. Press in with faith. There is good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. More than two billion people today identify themselves with the name of Christ. People around the world today are laying down their lives for their faith, believing that Jesus Christ is the resurrection. The third thing I want us to see is this, that the resurrection is victory. And this is the most powerful reason to believe it all. It's gospel because it's victory over the worst enemy, which is death. Paul writes in 15, verses 54 through 58, when the perishable put on imperishable, and what he's talking about is this, when Jesus Christ returns, what will happen? I hope this is not true of you today, but it's plausible. None of us know the day or hour of our death. You could pass away today. And if you did, we would, we would have a funeral for you in the next couple days and, and we would celebrate the resurrection and we would talk about your life, but then we would go to a gravesite and we would lay your body in the ground. And your body would stay there until when? Until when Christ returns, your soul, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your soul would be with the Lord, but your body awaits its full redemption until Christ comes again. And there's a lot of mystery about the details of when and how that's going to happen. But what's extremely clear from 1 Corinthians 15 is he will come again. And when he comes, the dead in Christ will rise and meet him in the air. And your body, resurrected, will be united with your soul in in and be prepared for the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? That's good news. And here's what he says. When the perishable puts on imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Finally, when that happens, not now, because we wait for the full redemption. When Christ returns, this will be true. Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your Lord and your, uh, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But this is hard to believe. I bet nearly every one of us has buried someone that we love. And if you haven't, you will. And I've been to many funerals, far more than I could want to have ever attended, and I will go to many more than I ever will want to attend either. But the worst by far for me thus far has been the funeral of my own father. Was not a, a man of faith, uh, not a church man at all. I, I was asked by the family, would I be the pastor to do his funeral. And so I arrived early uh, just to see his body because I knew I couldn't possibly talk if, if I'd not seen him beforehand. And I brought a letter to say goodbye. And I stuffed it in his coat pocket and the finality of that and sticking that in his coat pocket and saying goodbye and thanking him for being a good father. And then walking out of that room and saying goodbye the finality was so overwhelming and so incredibly difficult, I, I can barely even think about it to this day. This last week, I, I read, I found a blog called The Confessions of a Funeral Home Director. This young man named Caleb Wilde writes really interesting stories about what it's like to be a funeral home director. And he writes this sad story. He says, as I write this, I'm listening to a mother frantically scream, that's my baby. As she views the body of her deceased 24-year-old son for the first time since his death. She's kicking. She's screaming, stomping, weeping. I write this as my own therapy. It's hard to listen to. It must be harder for her. I can't imagine. She and her husband met in school. They were unable to have kids of their own, so they adopted what became their only son, now snatched away from an overdose. Cold, limp, unnatural, helpless. My dad comes over to me. We stare at each other for about 30 seconds in silence before he says, any mother would do the same. It's hard to listen to. There's nothing to say at these times. And then Paul comes into the room this morning and saying, but there's victory. And in this moment, where we live right now, it does not feel like victory. It does not. When you say goodbye to a loved one, you say goodbye, and you're separated for the rest of your life. There is no communication. It is a, a dark, dark separation. And yet Paul walks in and goes, but this is not the end. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Because he says, we have union with Christ. Therefore, in Christ, the dead will rise. That your body will rise and be renewed. One of the themes that I talk about here a lot is this, that we live in the land where things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not. Terrorism, 
when you read about Brussels last week, could you believe it? Just yet another. And part of you is numb and you just can't take it in. But part of you just says, again, like some of you probably ready to join the army and take up arms and just say, enough. But all of us say to ourselves, this is not right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So much of life is bound up in this place, this land where we live, which is just not the way it's supposed to be. This past week, I, I had an experience that's not nearly as serious as what I've been talking about, but uh, is another example of life being not the way it's supposed to be. T- two weeks ago, we had a church picnic. And at the end of the church picnic, uh, somebody came up to me and said, hey, we can't fit this cooler in our car. Could you guys take it home in your van and take it back to the church you know, sometime this week? And I said, absolutely. So we threw it in the back of our minivan, and, uh, and my wife drove it home. We shut the door, and she drove home and left it there. It was filled with drinks. It was filled with ice, and it sat in the back of our van, but then it began to leak for days into the back of the van. And the other day I walk in like on Monday into our garage and as I open the garage door, all I could smell was what? Mildew. And I'm obsessed about mildew. I mean, mildew is not the way it's supposed to be. And so at first, nothing but judgment for my three sons. I'm like, somebody has not brought in their baseball bag and washed their clothes and it's wet and it's out here mildewing in my garage, right? So I, I did this investigation and I checked every bag and every cleat and every shoe and no mildew. And I won't give in though because I'm obsessed. So I keep looking and looking and looking until I go to the back of the van and I open it up and it's a wall of death, just kaboom. <laughs> and I've got a busy week. It's Easter, it's, it's Holy Week, we've got so much to do. So the only time I have is at night, after dark, and I'm driving over to AutoZone and saying, wall of death of mildew, how do I get this out? And they're like, try this spray, do this, doesn't work. So then I get online and I Google, how do I get rid of mildew? Easily, hopefully, you know, and uh, try baking powder. So I'm dumping boxes of baking powder in the back of this van. It just is like bubbling the mildew. It doesn't do anything. We're baking a cake with mildew, but we're not getting rid of the mildew. And so I pour vinegar on top of it. And it's, oh, it's just, now I'm making it worse. Do you understand? It's mildew with vinegar. It's awful. So Friday, good Friday, I've determined, I'm going to take the morning off and I'm going to attack the mildew with all vigilance. I'm going to get rid of this death that exists in our car. And so I tear out the carpeting in the back and I'm learning how to do all this. I've got screwdriver. I'm just undoing everything. I'm taking out the seats and I'm exposing it to the light. There's so many, you're going to hear like 20 sermon illustrations about this. Like mildew's like sin and it grows in the dark, right? And (laughs) to get rid of it, you expose it to the light, brothers and sisters. (laughs) Exhibit A. But so I'm exposing it to the light and, and bleach and heat and time and fans and I'm six, seven hours into this project, okay? And it's finally gone. There's no smell and I've got my face down in it and I'm putting the carpet back in and I'm now simple greening it and oh, it smells delightful and I'm driving it over to the car wash and I start texting all those friends that have been te- you know, sharing in my agony and my, and my stepdad and I'm like, the van is cleansed, like, and it's been released of all of its, the enemy that is the mildew, and I'm so excited, and I take it, and I'm running it through the wash, and just smelling it, and just feeling so excited, and as I pull out of the wash, you know when it says, put it in drive, I hear that the back windows are open, and it's as if, not as if, it is literally like four gallons of water 
have come in and it's seeped into every single crevice. And if you ever want to see a man literally almost, literally almost go insane. I know. Now, we went serious, funny. Now back to serious. In The Lord of the Rings, the, the third book. <laughs> <laughs> the Return of the King. Samwise Gamgee. This is actually serious. <laughs> he and Frodo have destroyed the ring, all that is wrong in the world. They've destroyed it. And the eagles have carried them off back to some place. And, you know, they're passed out from their experience and pain. And Samwise finally wakes up. And he sees that all is right in the world. And he sees Gandalf the White, who's now resurrected from the dead. He thought Gandalf was dead. Gandalf the Grey had died. But he's right. He's raised as Gandalf the White. And Samwise asks the question, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer is yes, Sam. Everything that is sad is going to come untrue. This is the declaration of victory that is Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, you don't yet believe Christianity because that is Christianity. Everything that is sad will become untrue. Everything. It's not just that you escape the earth and go to heaven. Even the earth gets renewed. Did you know that? And, and everything that's wrong in the world gets renewed, including you. And if you don't yet believe this, I know you want to. I don't care who you are. You'd have to be a really miserable person not to want to believe that everything sad is going to become untrue. But that is the Christian gospel. I understand it's hard to believe. I understand that it sounds so great and so fantastic. It sounds like myth. But billions and billions of people over centuries after centuries have not only believed it to be true, but are laying down their lives and have laid down their lives believing it to be true, not the least of which are these people that were there. These apostles, Paul himself, why would you die for a ludicrous myth that you're making up? You would not. Finally, what Paul says is this. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. What Paul says is this. In order for you to live the Christian life that we're called to live, you have to believe in the resurrection. What is the work of the Lord? Be abounding in the work of the Lord. The, to, the work of the Lord is to forgive one another. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Not only forgive one another, but forgive your enemies and love them and pray for those that persecute you. What? That if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be the meek and the mild and the humble. And that the greatest in the kingdom shall be the last and servants of all, and that, that the students are not greater than the master who washes your feet on the night that he's betrayed. Jesus Christ gives us the example, but he's not just a moral example. He dies for our, our sin. He rises from the dead. Then he says, now abound in the work that I give you. Take up your cross, which means die to yourself. How can you do that? I find it hard to wash the dishes for my wife, let alone die to myself and pick up a cross. Without the resurrection, this is impossible, but with the resurrection, friend, this is so possible. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead 
and he's given us this hope, we can abound in the work of the Lord because of this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you that this is true. It's the true story that's underneath every other story that we talk about, that we, that we read about, that we see movies of. You have been raised from the dead. Help our hearts to believe, to press in beyond our doubts. We believe, help our unbelief, Lord, and help us to live in light of that great and powerful reality. We ask in the wonderful, matchless, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.